Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during July and August of 2006. Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley Chapter 11. Roll Your Own Inside Points on Building and Maintaining a Private Tennis Court Now that the Great War is practically over, until the next one begins, there isn't very much that you can do with that large plot of ground which used to be your war garden. It is too small for a running track, and too large for nasturtiums. Obviously, the only thing left is a tennis court. One really ought to have a tennis court of one's own. Those at the club are always so full that on Saturdays and Sundays the people waiting to play look like the gallery at a Davis Cup match. And even when you do get located, you have two sets of balls to chase, yours and those of the people in the next court. The first thing is to decide among yourselves just what kind of court it is to be. There are three kinds, grass, clay, and cornmeal. In Maine, gravel courts are also very popular. Father will usually hold out for a grass court because it gives a slower bounce to the ball, and father isn't so quick on the bounce as he used to be. All mother insists on is plenty of headroom. Junior and Mertis will want a clay one, because you can dance on a clay one in the evening. The court, as finished, will be a combination grass and dirt, with a little goldenrod late in August. A little study will be necessary before laying out the court. I mean, you can't just go out and mark a court by guesswork. You must first learn what the dimensions are supposed to be and get as near to them as is humanly possible. Whereas there might be a slight margin for error in some measurements, it is absolutely essential that both sides are the same length. Otherwise, you might end up by lobbing back to yourself if you got very excited. The worst place to get the dope on how to arrange a tennis court is in the Encyclopedia Britannica. The article on tennis was evidently written by the Archbishop of Canterbury. It begins by explaining that in America, tennis is called court tennis. The only answer to that is, you're a cockeyed liar. 
the whole article is like this. The name tennis, it says, probably comes from the French tenez, meaning take it, play. More likely, in my opinion, it is derived from the Polish tenith, meaning go on, that was not outside. During the 14th century, the game was played by the highest people in France. Louis X died from a chill contracted after playing. Charles V was devoted to it, although he tried in vain to stop it as a pastime for the lower classes, the origin of the country club. Charles VI watched it being played from the room where he was confined during his attack of insanity, and Dugeschlin amused himself with it during the siege of Dinan. And although it doesn't say so in the encyclopedia, Robert C. Benchley, after playing for the first time in the season of 1922, was so lame under the right shoulder blade that he couldn't lift a glass to his mouth. This fascinating historical survey of tennis goes on to say that in the reign of Henry IV, the game was so popular that it was said that there were more tennis players in Paris than drunkards in England. Well, the drunkards of England were so upset by this boast that they immediately started a drive for membership with the slogan, Five thousand more drunkards by April 15th, and to hell with France! <laughs> One thing led to another, until war was declared. The net does not appear until the 17th century. Up until that time, a rope, either fringed or tasseled, was stretched across the court. This probably had to be abandoned because it was so easy to crawl under it and chase your opponent. There might also have been ample opportunity for the person playing at the net, or at the rope, to catch the eye of the player directly opposite by waving his racket high in the air and then to kick him under the rope knocking him for a loop while the ball was being put into play in his territory. You have to watch those Frenchmen every minute. The Encyclopedia Britannica gives 15 lines to tennis in America. It says that few tennis courts existed in America before 1880, but that now there are courts in Boston, New York, Chicago, Tuxedo, and Lakewood, and several other places. Everyone try hard to think now just where those other places are. Which reminds us that one of them is going to be in your side yard where the garden used to be. After you have got the dimensions from the encyclopedia, call up a professional tennis court maker and get him to do the job for you. Just tell him that you want a tennis court. Once it is built, the fun begins. According to the arrangement, each member of the family is to have certain hours during which it belongs to them and no one else. Thus the children can play before breakfast and after breakfast until the sun gets around so that the west court is shady. Then daddy and mother and sprightly friends may take it over. Later in the afternoon, the children have it again, and if there is any light left after dinner, daddy can take a whirl at the ball. What actually happens is this. Right after breakfast, Roger Beeman, who lives across the street and who is home for the summer with a couple of college friends who are just dandy-looking, will come over and ask if they may use the court until someone wants it. 
They will let Mertis play with them, and perhaps Mertis's girl chum from Westover. They will play five sets, running into scores like 19 to 17, and at lunchtime will make plans for a ride into the country for the afternoon. Daddy will stick around in the offing, all dressed up in his tennis clothes, waiting to play with Uncle Ted. But somehow or other, every time he approaches the court, the young people will be in the middle of a set. After lunch, Lillian Neiman, who lives three houses down the street, will come up and ask if she may bring her cousin, just on from the west, to play a set until someone wants the court. Lillian's cousin has never played tennis before, but she has done a lot of croquet and thinks she ought to pick tennis up rather easily. For three hours there is a great deal of screaming, with Lillian and her cousin hitting the ball an aggregate of eleven times, while Daddy patters up and down the sidelines, all dressed up in white, practicing shots against the netting. Finally the girls will ask him to play with them, and he will thank them, and say that he has to go in the house now, as he is all perspiration and is afraid of catching cold. After dinner there is dancing on the court by the young people. Anyway, Daddy is getting pretty old for tennis. Chapter 12. Do Insects Think? In a recent book entitled The Psychic Life of Insects, Professor Bouvier says that we must be careful not to credit the little winged fellows with intelligence when they behave in what seems like an intelligent manner. They may be only reacting. I would like to confront the professor with an instance of reasoning power on the part of an insect which cannot be explained away in any such manner. During the summer of 1899, while I was at work on my treatise, do larvae laugh? We kept a female wasp at our cottage in the Adirondacks. It really was more like a child of our own than a wasp, except that it looked more like a wasp than a child of our own. That was one of the ways we told the difference. It was still a young wasp when we got it, thirteen or fourteen years old, and for some time we could not get it to eat or drink. It was so shy. Since it was a female, we decided to call it Miriam, but soon the children's nickname for it, Pudge, became a fixture, and Pudge it was from that time on. One evening I had been working late in my laboratory, fooling round with some gin and other chemicals, and in leaving the room I tripped over a nine of diamonds which someone had left lying on the floor, and knocked over my card catalogue containing the names and addresses of 